I'm Cecilia Hageman Younger, and today I'm talking with Lindsay Lerner, who's considered to be the human Swiss army knife. Welcome, Lindsay. Glad to have you, you on. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about your journey and what you do, and, and why are you the human Swiss army knife? <laughs> all, all great questions. I started out during undergrad. I went to school originally to be a photographer, and I thought from the time I was a young kid, six, seven years old, always had a camera on me and was always shooting anything and everything and, and making everyone look at photo book after photo book after photo book. And like I said, from the time I was a young age, decided I'm going to, I'm going to be a photographer. This is what I'm going to do. And then mm-hmm. went all through middle school. I had a really instrumental art teacher who pushed me to go down that path. And she was really helpful and promoted a lot of creativity and which is, was incredible. And then in <laughs> high school, I mean, I've always been very nerdy and uh, always felt the pressure to achieve in some capacity. And so schools and work was always very important. So I was, you know, president of the National Honor Society and graduated uh-huh. top 10 in the class. And it was a big shock when everyone else that graduated top 10 was going, you know, they're going to some great schools, Harvard and Yale and all these prestigious universities. And when mine ever said Delaware College of Art and Design, everyone was like, what? Like your parents are okay with that? That's a, That's cool. I was like, I mean, come on, I've been shooting weddings and bar and bat mitzvahs and, and events and I had my own baby business when I was in high school. And then from there, once I got to art school, I was like, wow, this is this is not this is not it. I remember the first the first drawing <laughs> class that I took, the instructor went around the room and she was like, good job, good job, good job. And then she got to mine and she just stopped. And she was like, you're a, oh. you're a photo major, aren't you? like damn yep sure am sure am and so not that it was all all her fault but it was mostly just this moment of like yeah I'm really like I understand the importance of art and design and especially fine art and all of these other things and how that assisted in improving my photography but that wasn't it wasn't the move for me okay and so then I transferred my sophomore year back to a university there was some family stuff going on I had to come back to Rhode Island And I ended up at Bryant University, which is the antithesis of art school. So rather than (laughs) rather than purple hair and tie dye shirts and no shoes, I was now surrounded by pencil skirts and heels and business. And when I got there, I was like, what is different? This this isn't it either. And that experience of being a, a weird nerdy kid in arts college, then going and being the weird artsy kid at a business school was just a, a weird experience. And so mm-hmm. the first chance that I got, I ended up studying abroad in Chile. My criteria was it had to be Spanish speaking and it had to be near water. And that was, that was it. And so okay. me and my, my knowledge of Ola uh, went down to Chile and lived with a host family. And we were very confused for a very long time. And we just put the computer on the kitchen table and we Google translated back and forth. Uh-huh. <laughs> you didn't know Spanish at all? Uh, no, no, oh. no, no. It was, yep, learn the hard way. Okay. As most things. And fortunately, there was another kid in my study abroad program who also didn't know Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so we bonded over that. And he fancied himself a hip hop artist. And I still loved photography. And so I had my camera with me at all times. And so between the two of us, our combined knowledge of Ola, my big fancy camera, and his mild resemblance to Neo, because he 
always had a fedora on for whatever reason at that time. <laughs> and I think people were fascinated because he was felt as though he was like the only black man in all of Chile at the time. And so eyes were always on him. <laughs> so we used all of these things to our advantage. And somehow we ended up booking shows all throughout Chile. Oh, wow. And it was hilarious. <laughs> it was me and my camera and him and his fedora. And we went all, all around and we got treated like fake rock stars. And it was an incredible way to spend the semester. And when we weren't doing that, we were getting our our butts kicked and getting lost in translation, but picked up, you know, a few Spanish words <laughs> along the way. And then when I came back from that semester abroad, I, or the kid I was working with, Phil, he said, well, you're organized. You, you should be my manager. Well, pff, yeah, I sure. Yep. I can do that. That sounds great. Okay. <laughs> so I attempted to do what we had done in Chile, which was you know, build relationships and ask nicely. And there was a different cultural difference in terms of people being respectful of the of music and of art and of culture and they were willing to pay for it and they were willing to show up and in north america when i was reaching out he was in cincinnati i was in providence rhode island and reaching out to venues in cincinnati attempting that same conversation it was met right. with huh <laughs> you want to oh well you can pay to play here and i was like what the? Uh -oh. what do you mean that's a thing. And yeah. then again, I knew nothing about the music industry in any capacity other than taking photos at shows <laughs> and uh, got my butt kicked that way and was just really, really, quite frankly, pissed off and was like, this is insane. P musicians who are working their butts off are paying to play at these venues and hoping that they can get people to show up so that they can sell tickets to maybe make a couple of bucks to perform when they're really the ones bringing the value and they're performing and they're putting their heart and soul into this. Watching these people who have built a career and built a life off of music, I was like, mm -hmm. this is insane. We need to be able to support this better. And so that was the, where the I, original idea of Level Exchange came from. And what Level is Exchange, Level Exchange? Oh, what is Level, Level Exchange? Exchange uh, it was the first first company that I started, and that was during, during undergrad. And Level Exchange during undergrad was an online booking platform that connected local bars, coffee shops, and restaurants to local musicians. And we started in in Rhode Island. Being from Rhode Island, I had a lot of connections in the area. And then Providence is, quote unquote, the creative capital. And there's 300 uh -huh. plus restaurants. So it was a ripe place to attempt to do this. Okay. Again, not knowing anything about the music industry. <laughs> and so <laughs> we built this online platform. And it was interesting because when I got to Bryant, I fought business tooth and nail. I was like, I have to take accounting. I have to take finance. Like I'm good. I'm mm -hmm. so good. I went there to study anthropology. That's what I was going to do. And I was kind of like, oh, I'm good with everything else. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the weird artsy kids started winning the business plan competitions and the pitch competitions and all of these different entrepreneurial endeavors. And I was like, well, this is, well, this, when you put it this way, this is kind of cool. <laughs> so <laughs> reframing. And so then at that point, we had Level Exchange was was starting to grow and we were able to to do local shows both in Cincinnati and some in Providence. And then I realized we really, we, we really had no idea what we were doing <laughs> in any capacity. So, so what like, did there you is, do? There is not a music industry here. And so I, there's a an artist that I was a big, big fan of that was going to be playing in Boston. And so I my little naive self went online and I stalked who the management <laughs> was of this artist. 
and was able to find an email. And I uh-huh. sent, I made the very, very, very wrong assumption that since this person was, you know, y- young, early 20s, I was like, well, if he's young, his manager's probably like his college roommate. It's probably the same thing, you know, Phil and I have been doing. So why not? <laughs> mm. Send him a note. Hey, I'm Lindsay. I'm based in Rhode Island. I take photos, would love to go to the show. Like I was attempting to use the strength that I had as a foot in the door in the hope that then I could get the foot in the door and then ask the music questions instead of mm-hmm. just harassing aimlessly, hoping for the best. And uh, an embarrassing amount of emails later that never got responses. Probably about a month later, I got a phone call. Mm-hmm. And I said, hello. It was a very, very grumpy, agitated voice on the other end. I said, is this Lindsay? It's like, uh-huh. It's like, this is this is Kevin. This is Waski's manager. And I was like, oh. And it's, I will never forget. Straight up, he was just like, what the f- do you want? Wow. <laughs> just like, oh. And just word vomit came out. I was like, I was just wondering if I could take pictures. And just went off. And he was like, please stop speaking. Like, just, just stop. I learned a few things that day. I, he kept me on the phone for like an hour. So he had some sort of amusement out of this. And he informed me. He was like, managers don't go on the road with bands. I am almost 70 years old. I have my own entertainment company in LA. I was a vice president in Live Nation. And I don't I don't need some crazy girl from Rhode Island harassing me. Like, what are you doing? And wow. we, we had this interesting conversation. And then he was like, yeah, um, you know, I'm not going to be the show. So like, I don't know what to tell you, kid. And then at the end, <laughs> he left a glimmer of hope. He said, if you're ever in LA, let me know. It's like, hmm, okay, oh. that sounds good. And so I had tickets to the show either way. And so I got there stupidly early, like, I don't know, three o'clock for like a nine o'clock show. Okay. And at it's at House of Blues in, in Boston. And there's one side that's all murals, uh, but they're actually doors. And so I heard sound check going on so i peeked my head in i flung open the door and walked in very aggressively i had my camera bag and walked very confidently i was like i can Mm -hmm. do this and this very large man (laughs) emerged and he's like sup i was like sup he's like are you coming in sure am so i'm standing there (laughs) in the middle of house of blues this band that i idolize is doing sound check and i'm just like well shit what do i do now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so i took out my phone and i texted the number that this guy had texted had called me from months before i was like hey man i'm at the show i know you said you weren't going to be here but just wondering if there was anyone that i could talk to <laughs> and he ended up texting me back he said last minute i was on the east coast anyway and i ended up coming down for the show so let me know when you get here and i might introduce you to our photographer so i was like sounds good i'm at sound check so five minutes later <laughs> <laughs> old man comes down and he taps me on the shoulder are you Lindsay? uh-huh how the did you get in here and i was like i i i don't know man you need better security or something <laughs> and he just laughed and then he started introducing me to people and i was like this is wild so at that point i was just hooked i was like this is absolutely it and so i got to see the whole show i got to see behind the scenes just how everything operated and i was like wow, this is not, this is definitely not what we have been doing. The first show that we hosted, we had eight bands booked. There was no sound guy. It was horrific. (laughs) So to see the inner workings of a professional operation, I was like, okay, we got some, we got some work to do here. 
And so after that, I had followed up with him and, and attempted to maintain a relationship. And every probably once a month or so, I would send updates around what Level Exchange was doing. Hey, this local band is really great. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And so fast forward, probably a year or so later, I got an email saying, hey, uh, would you be interested in doing some consulting work? A couple of the bands that I work with need help. I was like, oh. uh, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and so wow. that became the foot in the door and really the entry point into the music industry for me. I was, I'm still friends with and forever indebted and grateful to this man, Kevin, who really opened the door for me to what the music industry was. Mm -hmm. And one of his acts that I was working with, I went on, that's where I got the nickname Human Swiss Army Knife was because we were about to head out on Vans Warp Tour when they used to have that. And mm -hmm. I was booking and doing the logistics for the tour bus and the artist that we were working with was like, I mean, we got an extra spot on the bus if if you want to, I mean, it's the summer if you want to come, like, why not come? And it would be easier to do, I was doing content creation and photography work and just being like, in general, some sort of creative direction. And really? I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. My my <laughs> fingers typed faster than I could process. I was like, yes, send. And then I was like, oh. <laughs> like responsibilities, life, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, ended up hitting the road. And then on that, on that tour that I was on, the tour manager that, that, that they had hired ended up having to leave the tour. And since I was there, they were like, well, you're here. Your turn. Oh, wow. Like, you're, you're good at solving problems. You'll figure it out. And I was like, oh, okay. So in terms of trial by fire, that was the first time that I ever tour managed. Mm -hmm. was on Warp Tour. So that's 800 people, 20,000 miles. <laughs> wow. And then after that, it was like, oh, wow, this on that tour was when I realized, you know, getting gigs for local musicians and making sure that we were bringing fair trade principles to the music industry was really mm -hmm. important. But it was more than local acts making, you know, 200, 250 dollars versus 20 bucks in a beer. That was part of the problem. But the bigger mm -hmm. problem that I realized on that tour was that when we looked like rock stars, no matter what, which I mean, we we're on a big tour. So that was helpful. Right. But having a photographer and a videographer and a studio engineer constantly around pushing all of that out on socials was really what created the hype. And there wasn't necessarily, in my opinion, a talent discrepancy between the local acts that I was working with and these national acts. And so mm -hmm. when I came back from that tour, Level Exchange completely pivoted to a co-working in a production space for musicians in and around New England. And so we opened okay. up a physical space where rather than matchmaking between bars and coffee shops and restaurants, we match made between photographers and videographers and engineers with local artists to then create the content to then distribute oh. that across the state. That's that's a flip from what you were doing. It sure was. <laughs> it sure was. But having that that space was incredible. Yeah, but but doing that, um, yeah, that just re really helps you the following, and just yeah. having all the content there, just being distributed in so many different ways. Yeah, and it, I think my favorite part about it was that we were able to work really closely with city and state officials, and my goal was really to get people to look at music rather than look at musicians as well they're poor starving artists and they just you know no one files taxes and they're all under the radar and everyone gets paid cash and they're useless rather than looking at it that way we flipped it and it became let's look at these musicians and these artists as the main drivers of economic development we're in you know the state of Rhode Island we only have a million people in the whole state we've got 11 colleges and universities what can we do with that and so it was really great to be able to work and 
work with city and state, especially the city of Pawtucket. They were amazing to collaborate with. And it was just, it was, like I said, it was an incredible experience to be able to get, provide them with the content that they could then produce and they could show and they could say, this Mm -hmm. is what's going on in our city. Oh, that's nice. And it was really based on relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And that's incredible. That is so (laughs) incredible. (laughs) And what was, what was really, I think the most magical about it was being able to have the, I am a overly proud and at the time a very stubborn Rhode Islander. So everything had to be Rhode Island, Rhode Island, Rhode Island. And so I wanted to bring as many resources in to the state as possible. Mm -hmm. And so it was cool to be able to have these local artists that we were working with, whether they were high school students or college students or post education, whatever it was, getting local acts in the room with some of the touring acts and that mentorship and that advising and those conversations and the magic that happened in those spaces was really, it was just the best. Yeah, that is. Yeah. When you can put all that together in one physical space, I mean, you just, I don't know. I think that you help so many people. Yeah. Um, both on, on different levels. Exactly. Yeah. And that was, a, that was the goal. Well, so then what was like a fatal mistake that you made? That's a good how, one and good timing. How'd you recover? <laughs> uh, in terms of the fatal mistake, I, like I said earlier, I, at the time, overly proud, very stubborn Rhode Islander. And so not having music industry experience, not having startup experience, not having any of these experiences, all I heard and saw from the flashy startup community was you got to fundraise, got to fundraise. In order to Mm -hmm. have a successful startup, you need to fundraise a ton of money and you have to scale and you have to move fast. You have to break things and all this other, quite frankly, bullshit. And so, so... That's what I did. That was that's what happened at the time. I was like, okay, well, if I'm gonna fundraise and I'm gonna get money to build this thing, then it's got to be from a Rhode Islander. And so I, mm-hmm. very naively, set my sights on just Rhode Island. And if anyone knows anything about venture capital, it doesn't quite exist in Rhode Island. <laughs> I think <laughs> I want to say there's maybe a a dozen or so venture capitalists in the entire state. And so it's not something that we're known for. There's a lot of, there's a decent amount in Boston. There's a lot in New York City. And obviously there's a ton out in San Francisco. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, nope, we're gonna, I don't need that much money because what we needed, we had an agreement with an incredible local brewery that Mm -hmm. I adore. And they agreed that I could have a corner of their warehouse to build out into the level exchange space Uh in exchange for doing the music and the booking and everything entertainment related for them. And I was like, you got yourself a deal. If there's anything that I've gotten good at, it was at that time was bartering. I was like, I have zero (laughs) dollars. I've never, I was a college student. And then I never had a real job until like last year. So (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I have no money, but I have skills that are potentially valuable to what you need. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to finagle that deal, which I'm forever grateful for. And I knew my dad is a contractor. And so I knew I had at least help with building. Obviously materials would cost something, but I'm mm-hmm. pretty crafty. He's very crafty and we could make something work. So I didn't need a ton of money. So we're not talking you know, millions of dollars of funding in venture capital to build some crazy technology company. It was- right. A little bit of money to do something really impactful. And so I talked to, I think it was like 104 people. And they weren't necessarily people with money since that was not my not my wheelhouse at the time with my <laughs> network. But it was people that I thought 
might be connected to somebody who might be an investor or might be interested. And so I ended up being able to connect with somebody from from college who introduced me to somebody that they promoted as a friend of theirs. And so then I was like, okay, that sounds great. And so I was able to meet up with this guy and got him to sit down with me. I pitched him on the whole business. He said, I think you have a great idea. Let's do it. And I was like, okay, that, yep, that sounds good. Let's do it. And it worked until it didn't. And so we were business partners for a while and Mm -hmm. he provided the funding for getting the space up and running. And once the space was built and up the day of the, the day before the launch party, everything went sideways and it was made clear that his intentions were not to help the business, but more so a personal interest. Oh. And so that a day before you're about to launch the biggest thing you've done in your career so far is pretty (laughs) earth shattering. And so I kind of took a step back and honestly, I, I physically took a step back from that conversation left was mortified, horrified, got to my house and then tripped up the stairs and busted my ankle. So then the day of the launch, I was on crutches. And so then the, the day of the launch, I was very much on edge. And so I'm attempting to be happy and excited and motivated and get Mm -hmm. all, we had hundreds of people at the launch and bands and just everything was, it was so good. All (laughs) while in the back of my head is this like terrible gut-wrenching feeling of like, is this all just going to get erased tomorrow because Mm -hmm. of this? And then from that point on, it was nine, 10 months of, of litigation to get out of that relationship. Oh, wow. And that was definitely the one of the most difficult things that I've I've had to do. I mean, this this level exchange, because I started it and I was so young and was so excited and so naive, it was really my identity. And so when mm-hmm. that started to fade away, that unfortunately led to the the shutting down of the company, shutting down of the space, shutting down of everything, which is very unfortunate. Wow. And because of that, it took me a long time to recover and to really pull apart pull apart my identity from Mm -hmm. the company. And then it took an even longer time to realize, oh, people like me and they care about me and they weren't just hanging around me or working with me because of Level Exchange. So it took a while, a lot of therapy, but we're here. (laughs) So how did you recover? Was it just time and therapy and- Yeah, I think a lot of time, a lot of therapy basically immediately dive into another venture. I knew I was like, if I don't do this now, whether mm-hmm. it fails or is wildly successful, if I don't continue the momentum of being in a startup and building, I'm going to be way too scared to do it right. ever again because of how bad this, this time turned out. Yes. And I was on a, I was on a tour. This, this, this was January and February of 2020. Mm-hmm. I was on a big K-pop tour. We went around the U S and it was a good reset because everything had just wound down with Level Exchange. I got to be on this tour. I got to remember why music was so important and got to meet fans and got to meet new bands. And it was just, it was a really lovely experience. And then I was like, you know what? I've been across the country on tour buses dozens and dozens of times. And I have not seen a damn thing other than music venues and basements of music (laughs) venues because you're always go, go, go. You don't get to Mm -hmm. see 
a national park. You don't get to really experience anything. I called my housemate and I was like, hey, I'm not going to come back. I bought a van. I'm going to convert it. And I'm actually, I'm going to do my own tour. And she was like, hi, okay. That's not like completely out of the box for you. So I'll let that slide. <laughs> but also, okay. <laughs> and obviously we all know what happened in, in March of 2020. So it was like really great timing. So wow, yes. during the pandemic, I was in my van and I was was in my van. I was like, I guess this is the safest place that we can be. <laughs> and so it left a lot of time for reflection and processing. And then during that time, I had reconnected with a, a woman I had worked with and we launched a company called Vanter, which was a mobile app that made going places easy and safe for diverse travelers. And having worked primarily in hip hop as a tour manager, I had firsthand experience of, hey, the little white girl can go to a hotel anywhere can go into a restaurant, a bar, a coffee shop, whatever it is, and be mm -hmm. welcomed with open arms. Right. When I come into a hotel in the middle of the U.S. and I've got a dozen black men with me who are in the band, we all get treated real differently. And mm -hmm. it goes from, oh, sweetie, do you need early check-in? What do you need to? Sweetie, do you need help getting away from them? Oh, nope, oh, sure wow. don't. Yeah. Sure don't. They're paying my bills and yours. So maybe let's not, let's not do that. And then now mm. in my... It was also fuel to the fire in my personal life. My partner is Afro-Latina. My daughter is Black. And so th the three of us, like, we can't go anywhere <laughs> without, it, <laughs> without it being a problem. And so really, the mobile app served to solve that issue. And that launched January-ish, 2022. And so it was like, we got off to a really great start. And then <laughs> came to a screeching halt when... Obviously, travel came to a screeching halt. But through all of those experiences, it, it, it didn't last long, but it was enough of flexing the muscle of building a business and diving back into the entrepreneurial ring to mm -hmm. not completely stall everything. Yeah. So what tips do you have for people who are starting out? I think, I think everything for me has come back to relationships. And I've noticed, especially a lot over the last mm -hmm. couple of years, that there's a really, really big focus, unfortunately, on social media and the way that we can look and present ourselves and how people have become brands and you can exist online and then you meet someone in person and it's not, <laughs> it's not quite adding up. And right. so I think what's given me the ability to have longer term success is that I put people first and people matter and building relationships and actually being there for people and showing up for people allows other people to show up for you. So I would say that's the, the biggest thing, first and foremost, is that focus on people because at the end of the day, that's, that's all there is. <laughs> I, that's great. Um, yeah, because I, I've seen in the work that I do that you need to show that you're reliable and you're authentic. And the way you do Definitely. that is really building that relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And showing that people do matter and you care about people. Right. A hundred percent. And that's what's, that's, what's been top of mind lately is I've realized over the past 10 plus years, I've been able to sit and have really incredible conversations with people because I've mm -hmm. put myself in an awkward position and I've asked, which right. is uncomfortable, but if you ask, Usually people will talk to you. Yeah. And I, similar to you, started a podcast that's launching <laughs> in a couple weeks from now. But that was Great. the goal. It was to really sit down and have these conversations with people. It's called Cost of the Status Quo. And okay. the goal was to 
or is to have conversations with people and have them provide their tips and tricks for when they've gone against the grain and what worked and what didn't. That's, I mean, that's the whole point. And I'm just imagining mm-hmm. we're, I've recorded probably 15, 20 episodes so far. And I'm just imagining what would it look like if we got all of those people in a room? Yes. What are the yeah. changes that you think you could make? And how do we create a world that's not this nine to five grind and fake whatever on social media? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I mean, I think it would be, it would be incredible if we can just, I don't know, talk, yes. get together. Yeah, mm. I love it. All right. That's it. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for coming on Being Bold. Um, I really uh, enjoyed hearing your journey and what you're doing now with Vanter. Yeah. yeah, Vanter unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. That uh, that went the wayside, but the podcast has, uh, okay. has taken its place. So everything <laughs> cost of the status quo related still exists. And then through Vanter, I was able to get into consulting in terms of how do we make things more equitable? How do we progress? How do we move forward? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, I look forward to hearing your podcast and Thank I will you. put that in the description so everybody can see what it's about. Heck yeah. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for listening to Being Bold. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to message me at Cecilia at beingboldanddriven.com or message me on Facebook or Twitter at Being Bold. 